listening to a Called Collective podcast, where we seek to equip the next generation of ministry leaders. The Called Collective produces multiple podcasts, which you can find in the description below. To learn more about The Called Collective, visit our website at thecalledcollective.org or check us out on Instagram at The Called Collective. Welcome back to the Defining Yes podcast. My name is Reagan Tippy, and I have the esteemed honor of being your host. And today is the special 15th episode. And if you have been listening along with me, every fifth episode, I do something different. Our first one, we had my parents, Robin Mel, uh, on the podcast. And my dad is the pastor. My mom is the pastor's wife. So got to hear their story. And then the 10th episode was myself talking about my story And today I have a professor with us who has so much experience, DJ Coleman, who's just going to talk about uh, some very interesting things he's been asking to be on the podcast for a while. So I'm excited to just hear his insight on something that I think is really important for women as we go into ministry, but also just the overall church and understanding who is called and what we're called to do. Um, So we're going to talk about that. But first, DJ, if you just want to introduce yourself, what you're doing, where you're at in life. Sure. Yep. Yeah. My name is DJ Coleman, professor here at Indiana Wesleyan University, professor of practical theology and homiletics. And um, yeah, I uh, I've been here. This is my second year now, and I'm a big fan of Reagan Tippy. Uh, <laughs> as so, uh, my kids, uh, Reagan watches my kids every now and then, and they they love you. You're an amazing person. <laughs> and yeah, when I heard about this podcast. I wanted to be a part of it. I have come here by way of being a youth pastor. And part of uh, being a youth pastor, one of my favorite things was having interns. And we'd get interns from all over the United States and different universities to come and to serve and do incredible things. And I noticed that some of our, our female interns would be hesitant in leading in different mm. ways, specifically in preaching or teaching yeah. And I began to ask questions of, of why that was. And I found out that some of their uh, hesitancies were inconsistent, incoherent, and I wanted people to be able to articulate why they felt the way that they did and kind of give them freedom. But I wanted them to be able to articulate mm-hmm. biblically uh, um, their justification or their rationale for the perspectives that they had yeah. um, while honoring their perspectives. But, yeah, this is a very important uh, subject uh, for me. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. Yeah. Thanks. And thanks for just being somebody who wants to pour into women. And as such a strong, dominant male leader, we need people like you who for see sure. gifts in women and call it out and encourage them. And so today, what we're going to be doing is going through a passage that many people will use to fight against or maybe oppose uh, women in ministry. So we're going to be looking at First Timothy 2, 8 to 15. Uh, and so I'm going to read that. But just kind of why we're talking about this, The our goal is that we get to walk alongside of you wherever you are in your ministry journey, whether it's you feel like you're getting a call and you're not sure, or whether you're 20, 30 years into ministry and you're still having these conversations and you just feel a little lost of how do I support my case almost? Um, and we never want you to have to fight against people, but just have a conversation where you get to explain why you're called and why you get to do what you do and uh, why the Lord has specifically shaped you and called you to this purpose. 
And so kind of what DJ and I are going to be doing is a little back and forth. I'll just be jumping in, but also a little uh, role play is I'm going to be almost an oppressor. I'm going to uh, talk as if I do not agree with women in ministry. Of course, you all hopefully know that's not true <laughs> as a woman in ministry myself. Right. But I'm going to read this passage and DJ is not going to fight against me, but is going to have a conversation of why this is important, what this passage actually means. So we have clarity and when we teach it and when we talk about it. And then I may just jump in with questions or a little pushback so that you as women in ministry know how to have these conversations. I better know how to have these conversations and men know how to lead conversations with other people who may not agree with this. So that's what we're going to be doing today. I'm super excited as something different, not so much an interview style, but I think something that's going to be a real practical tool uh, for all of you as you pursue ministry and pursue this calling. So I'm going to start with reading the passage. Once again, it's 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15, and it says this, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothing, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah. <laughs> you can go ahead and <laughs> jump into that. Yeah. So this is a text that people will use to um, silence women and silence God's people. And I think it's incredibly important that we start off by saying, uh, by quoting 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed, it's Mm. inspired by God, it is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, so that we would be thoroughly equipped for the work that God has for us. So what we're not going to do is dismiss Scripture. Mm. What we're going to do is ask very important questions about Scripture. We're going to look historically and look at the context and ask questions like, what's going on? Why is Paul writing this um, to Timothy? Where is Timothy? What's happening in uh, the the place uh, that Timothy is? And then we're going to also think about the literary structure. These are very important things to to examine um, when you're looking at Scripture. But even before you start looking at Scripture, you have to ask yourself why do we start so often with the most restrictive passages? Mm. So if we're wanting to think about serving in the church, thinking about spiritual giftedness and God's desire to bring restoration, redemption, and reconciliation, and God calling all people to himself and and calling all people to join and partner with him in the ministry of reconciliation— Why is it that we start oftentimes with the most restrictive passages when it comes to women in Mm. leadership? Often we don't start in Genesis, but if you start in Genesis chapter 1, pre-fall, you see Adam and Eve together with uh, shared authority, shared responsibility, and shared um, love, a God that loves them and 
calls them to fruitful ministry. It's not until after the fall that you see some sort of a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So God's desire and God's design is not this hierarchy where men are better or over women in this way. God's desire is for a fruitful partnership in bringing and advancing God's kingdom all over the earth. But after the fall, maybe people can argue that there's this um, hierarchy that takes place. And then um, whenever we see redemption, we don't see that there's a hierarchy in redemption. When when Christ atones for our sins, uh, this redemptive act is equally shared, whether you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, we are justified freely in Christ. In spiritual giftedness, the Holy Spirit gives uh, people, we see the prophecy in Joel, but also articulated in Acts chapter 2, that God's Spirit comes upon all flesh, men and women, giving them dreams and visions. We see in the consummation of all things, men and women gathered around the throne of God, worshiping God. So you see God's heart throughout Scripture, but oftentimes when it comes to women in leadership, we do find ourselves having to to deal with First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 2 the passage that you just read. And so I wanted to kind of give us that framework Mm -hmm. before we get into that passage to know that there's, that this passage finds itself in a, in a greater biblical meta narrative. And also we haven't even looked at the ministry of Paul. If we wanted Mm -hmm. to look at the ministry of Paul, Paul is using women in very profound ways in his ministry. Romans chapter 16, I, I recommend everyone to go read Romans 16 and look at how many women are mentioned in Romans chapter 16. In the book of Philippians, Paul seems to be speaking about women in leadership in Philippians. Uh, We talk about Lydia in Acts, who possibly started the church in Philippians. So even in the ministry of Paul, we see women leading in significant Mm -hmm. ways. So then we must be confused when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and he makes this statement, women must be silent. Or I do not permit a women uh, women to teach, and so I think that is something that we first need to uh, be aware of. That we need to approach this um, almost as an anomaly, where we see Paul using women and and being the benefactor of women in his ministry um, to this passage that seems to be restricting. We have to ask questions, and that's when we go to historical context and literary context. Uh, two things that I wanted to bring up that I, I think is important. Um, one is something that has come up more recently in scholarship, which is the this new Roman woman. And there are articles that you can find online about this. Dr. Steve Robbins um, at Vineyard Leadership Institute has a has an article online that is really good, and he he goes through this idea of the new Roman woman. Essentially, what he looks at, things began to change in the first century before Christ. Wealth was flowing into Rome in a time of political instability due to civil wars that were prevalent uh, that separated women from their soldiering husbands, husbands that who were at war, resulting in a more public presence of women in social and political uh, sectors. Women became public leaders. Women became a little bit more influential. And one of the ways that recent scholarship has been able to observe these changes are through legal text and archaeological evidence um, that have surfaced 
um, and has helped us to understand new critical background material um, that helps us to understand women in the late Republican and early Roman Empire. So with the with the the new Roman woman, one of the things that we see is this kind of women's liberation movement. Mm-hmm. Women are um, have more opportunities. They are expressing themselves um, more freely, and essentially, you start to see laws start to change. Women are now able to. Uh, keep some of their property when uh, they get divorced. They get to keep whatever they brought into the marriage. And women are able to um, have jobs. And um, some of the poets talk about this uh, time period and they talk about some of the freedoms that that women have. And what this started to do was to, to form a society in which women were conveying their sexual availability they were expressing themselves freely, and there was almost this heightened insubordination. And this is the context Paul is writing to Timothy. And Timothy is leading this church in Ephesus. In Ephesus, you have the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. And when you look at some of the historical and archaeological findings, you can kind of uh, see what society was like, and hence why I was kind of referencing the the new Roman woman. And so one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves as we read this passage is, is Paul writing uh, to Timothy eternal, timeless truth, or is he writing him contextually relevant, ministerial relevant uh, practices? And um, if we just look at this passage, we just need to ask ourselves that question. Is this eternal, timeless truth, or is he writing a specific and timely instruction? So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 says, therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. So he has a command, and then he kind of gives some context. I want men to pray. I want them to do that without anger or disputing. Then he goes to verse 9. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And so you have this uh, restriction here. I want women to dress modestly. Is he referencing some of the cultural uh, implications of the way that the new Roman women would have dressed um, and flaunting their uh, sexual availability? Is he referencing how Artemis would have been dressed? Oftentimes, if you kind of Google a picture of Artemis, you'll see a stone statue. We need to know that those stone statues uh, were clothed. People would put clothing on those stone statues, and the the uh, people that would follow Artemis would wear uh, the attire that she wore. You were who you you were what you wore. And that that's kind of mm-hmm. a famous quote in that time period. And so clothing became important. It was a symbol, um, a sign of your wealth or your status um, in society. And so what you wore became very important. If you had women in Ephesus who um, were newly con- new converts to Christ, uh, to Christianity, maybe who were part of this uh, movement, the new Roman women, what they wore became very important if you wanted to maintain the the purity, for lack of a better words, of your house church. And so this instruction uh, seems to be a timely, wise instruction that Paul was given to young Timothy 
there in Ephesus. But then he also says, I want them to dress modestly. But what does it mean to dress modestly? <laughs> when we talk about dressing modestly, is it the same thing that Paul means? Right. Uh, we have to understand that the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. Mm-hmm. So we need to do the work to figure out what does this, uh, what, what does dressing modestly mean to the original audience? Fortunately for us, uh, you have this description right after What does it mean to dress modesty? Um, With decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles, gold or pearls, or expensive clothes. This, again, is a sign and a symbol for your status, not really about sexual promiscuity. Modesty seems to be about your status. So you can literally follow this verse to a T in modern society where you don't wear your hair and hairstyles, you don't wear gold, you don't wear pearls or expensive clothes, but you still create distance between you and others in the church, that is going against the heart of this text. Paul is urging for unity and uh, speaking out against division. And so then you get into verse 10, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess worship in God. So Paul's idea of modesty is about good deeds, appropriate for women who profess God. Then we get into verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. So this is countercultural for this time, where women didn't necessarily learn. Paul is saying women should learn. So this would have possibly been provocative in the time of Paul, giving giving women uh, in the church opportunities to learn. Um, and, and so this is kind of ironic today that this is kind of taken as more restrictive, whereas for the original audience, Paul is saying, hey, look at uh, the oppressive conditions of women. We need women to learn, especially these women who are coming from this new Roman woman mm-hmm. uh, or the temple of Artemis. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. So this quietness what is, it, what is Paul talking about when he says a woman should learn in quietness? If we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, just starting in verse 1, it says, I urge then, first of all, all that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, men and women, for kings and all those in authority that may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So not only does he want women to live these quiet lives, but all people to live quiet Mm -hmm. lives. So women should learn in quietness. This is something that he's already said. A woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. Now, when we hear this word submission, we see this in Ephesians 5 as well. We kind of think about a wrestler who makes someone submit uh, (laughs) to tap out. And we think of that's kind of sometimes the first uh, word that we think of. Uh, but I'm a professor, and it's finals week is coming up, and, and <laughs> students are going to submit their papers. Mm. Submitting doesn't have to be this uh, make someone tap out, but this giving uh, giving something away. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Uh, what does it look like um, to understand this word a little bit differently? And I think we're going to, going to find out a little bit more as we read them. And then we get to verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. And here's the verse, right? Verse 12. 
I do not permit a woman to teach. Why is Paul saying this? Again, we have to ask these questions, and we have to think about the literary structure, but also the historical context. And we have to ask this for the greater Pauline literature. Do we see women teaching in, Pauline, in Paul's ministry? And we do with Aquila and Priscilla, and also with Phoebe. We see them teaching. We also see in the ministry of Jesus uh, women learning, but also teaching. And so we get to this question, and we ask, why is Paul saying he doesn't permit a woman to teach? And this is consistent with the letter that Paul is writing if we look in chapter 1. What he's wanting to prevent is heresy. He's mm -hmm. not wanting yeah. to prevent women from teaching. He's wanting to prevent heresy. So for this specific context, with, in this specific place, this specific time with these specific people, he's not wanting these specific women to teach in this specific church. And I hope what you're hearing is that this, there are specifications for this, uh, this place in, in time. He does not permit these women to teach or for them to assume authority over a man. And uh, with this word authority, this is not the traditional word uh, that Paul uses for authority. Uh, this, I believe, is a harpox negomenon, and I know that's a big word. <laughs> but what that means is it's a word that only appears once in mm. the Bible, once in the New Testament in Greek. And this is a hyper-authority. This is a oppressive, domineering authority. And other translations actually translate this a little differently. Um, not to have this overbearing authority over a man. She must be quiet. And you get this word uh, quiet again that we've seen for all people, not just women. Women must be quiet the same way that men must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And now some people will say, well, there you go, DJ. It is eternal timeless truth. Referring back to Genesis, there we have it. This is for all times, all ages, all places. Women must be quiet. Women cannot teach because Adam was formed first, then Eve. And it almost seems like what is first is greater. Hmm. But that neglects literary structure. In Hebrew, it seems like things go from glory to glory. You make the emphasis at the end. Creation order is not a emphasis on what is greater. Uh, a man doesn't submit to a fish, but fish were created before men. And so that's not consistent. Men, I don't submit to a giraffe, but a giraffe <laughs> was created before I was. And so that's not, we don't, we don't do that ourselves. In fact, if you just take, I have my phone right here. This is an iPhone. I, I don't know what it is, maybe a <laughs> 12 or something. I should have thought about that before I came up with the analogy. But uh, this is, no one would trade an iPhone 12 for an iPhone 2 mm -hmm. or an iPhone 3, unless you can like trade it in because it's extremely valuable right now because <laughs> they don't make those anymore. But the point remains that it's not always what's created first is better. Mm. Um, and so this is very important. What What is being said here? Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Think about this. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. And you could read that and think, well, there it goes. Eve was deceived, not Adam. But which is worse, being deceived or just blatantly ignoring mm. and rebelling against God, not being deceived. Adam was not the one deceived. 
Eve was deceived. Adam knew full well the command of God and chose to rebel. Eve was manipulated and deceived. We can read these things in this way. Then it goes on, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. And I always ask my students this question, how are we saved? How can we be saved? And if I'm if I'm really wanting to play with them, I'll, I'll they'll say the only way that we can be saved is through Jesus Christ. And I'll say, well, there's another way we can be saved. And they're like, what? And this is heresy, right? And I said, well, if we live a completely perfect, sinless life, then we can be saved. Mm. Well, that's impossible. The only way that we can be saved is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So, what is being said here? This is again, we have to ask these questions. What is Paul talking about? Paul is the one who champions this idea that we're saved by faith alone, not by works so that we cannot boast, Mm -hmm. but only by Jesus Christ. Well, we are saved through the birth of a child, the man Jesus Christ. Mm. We are saved through childbearing that this Theotokos, this God-bearing woman, Mary, who gave birth to this child who's going to crush the head of the serpent and do away with sin, referring again back to Adam and Eve. We are saved through the promised seed uh, that has come in the person of Jesus. If we continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety, women are saved the same way that men are saved. Women have the uh, authority and the responsibility to partner with God in the work of redemption and reconciliation the same way that men do. Women have the, the gift of the Holy Spirit in the same way that men do, and women can partner with God in this work of redemption through the, the gift of preaching in God's church and teaching and leading. And this is something that is consistent in the ministry of Paul. It's consistent in the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ, and it's historically true and we see in the church. However, men have oppressed women and have used passages like this uh, to suppress and Mm -hmm. oppress women, and um, this should not be. And so this is, I think, one way that we can understand this passage, and I I hope that it's helpful for us to read it this way. Yeah. Thanks for your insight. And something that I hope, one is the biggest takeaway, is that in any single passage in all of Scripture, we can't take it out of context, right? right? If we just go read that Scripture, it's hard to fight against it, right? Okay, women should learn in quietness. Okay. But if you learn the context, if you understand what was going on during the time, even within the passage, like where does it fall? Like it's not just six verses and that's it. There's before, there's after. So understanding all of the context and something that I found interesting in verse 11, when it talks about learning in quietness and full submission, like it doesn't say to men. Like, right. I think that's, your mind just says, yeah, in quietness and full submission to men. Right. When in reality, like, isn't that what we do? We learn God's word in our quiet time with him. Like, mm-hmm. that's a, an avenue that we learn more about him. And we have to be in full submission to him, like our father, our creator. That's so good, yeah. And so maybe that passage is talking about being in full submission of the father. And if so, wh- like, what does that have? That's an honor to be able to be told, like, I, as a woman, need to submit to my father, and I hope that I will willingly do that. And so I think, yeah, diving into the passage, breaking it apart, understanding more than just this. Like, if I'm, you know, I didn't do too much dialogue back and forth with against (laughs) it. It was just all so good. Uh, But if I were to fight against this, 
how how then would I respond to a passage that you're talking about with Paul talking about Priscilla and Aquila and Phoebe and and Jesus talking about Mary, all these people. Junia, there's several women that are mentioned in Scripture, yeah. Yeah, I can't just say, oh, that doesn't matter. This passage, though, this is this, and that's right. all that matters. Right. We have to look at the full picture. And so if you're listening to this, just something I want you to be aware of. Uh, I hate to say this, but there are people who are not going to agree with you in ministry. Right. Like you just aren't going to have a spotless mm. ministry where nobody asks you questions or comes against you or anything like that. I hope that it's through seeking understanding that people come and talk and have conversations. And I hope this conversation prepared you a little more to have those conversations. But part of being a woman in ministry, and as some people say, a woman in a men's world, it's just part of it. We have to know that we're called by God. And if we don't know that we're called by God, that's this passage isn't our problem, right? It's, Mm. It's our calling. But if we know that we're called by God and we seek to understand this passage and seek to teach it in a way that's applicable and understanding, then I think that's just the most important thing. So it's not something that you are going to get around, but I hope it just give you a little more confidence knowing that when you're put in a space and in a context where you have to explain this passage or in a way fight your case, you know what you're talking about and you're able to have some dialogue on it. We hope that this conversation is not where this ends. We hope you'll continue to look into it Uh, And listen to other conversations and hear more about it because it is a passage that most people will use against women in ministry. And one last thing, I think sometimes when we think of people who don't agree or oppress women in ministry, our mind automatically thinks men. Men are the one who who do it. Reality is it's not always men, right? There are different denominations, different faith groups who just don't believe that collectively. So men and women. Uh, the first person who questioned me about women in ministry was a female, one of my close friends. And I've talked about mm-hmm. this before on here. And she used this passage. And at that time, I had never, like, been asked about it. So I had no idea. I was like, I don't even know what passage you're talking about. And right. so that was my first cue of I mm-hmm. need to learn more. But it was a female. And the thing was is she she told me I could teach her. I could sit. I could preach to her. She just told me I couldn't do it to men. Mm-hmm. And so just having those conversations where – she didn't fully disagree with this passage and she didn't fully agree with it. Mm. But there was something that she picked out that was like, this is what I'm going to believe. And so it was just, yeah, it's difficult. But that's just something we're going to face um, from men, from women. And just understanding that when you're called by God, uh, nobody can tell you that you can't do what you're called to do if you are called by God and you know that. And so I hope this is an encouraging conversation, though it seems a little uh, of a downer knowing that this may be part of your reality. I hope you feel encouraged to know that we believe in you and we're cheering you on. And something DJ said was this was a champion, uh, championing you, (laughs) Um, (laughs) fighting with you, walking with you, um, and knowing that you're never doing it alone, even when you may be in a context when you feel like you're the only woman pursuing ministry, you feel like you're the only one who's grasping onto this concept, know that there's people who stand with you, even if uh, you may not be able to see them or hear them, uh, we stand with you, and we're excited that you get to partner with people in ministry, and you get to walk along women uh, and have these conversations and teach them what it means to be a woman of God, but also what it just means to preach His Word and to be obedient to His Word. So, DJ, thanks for coming on here and diving a little deeper into the context, and uh, I think just Having a male voice do that is important to know that, like, if I were to say that's one thing because I'm a female. Yes, I support female in ministry, 
but having you do that and knowing so much, I mean, you teach practical theology. It's part of it, uh, I think, is just so beneficial. Thank you for being somebody who champions me in my ministry and walks along me in that. It's been super special for me to have so many professors just pour into me as a youth pastor who's still trying to navigate grad school. Yeah. So, Well, thank you for having me. It's been an honor to be on the podcast, and, and thank you for your ministry and ministering to me. I really appreciate all that you've done. Yeah. All right, and the Defining Yes podcast, we will see you back next week for episode 16, and we will be talking with Amy Beagle.